You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. Please follow along with me in your sermon notes or your Bible or a chairback Bible in front of you. We're reading from Genesis chapter 39 today as we continue our sermon series in Genesis. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and fled, and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household, and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way that your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you for this account of Joseph. Thank you for the truth of scripture, for the assurance that we can have that this is your true word. And we pray now that you will implant this in our heart 
as we hear the message from Pastor Jeremy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The prosperity gospel is an awful and deceptive message that presents itself on the surface as if it's just normal Christianity. But underneath this false veneer is a wicked and awful message that will bring spiritual disaster. For those unfamiliar with the prosperity gospel, it's a popular theology that plenty of churches here in our town subscribe to. And if you turn on some late night preachers on cable TV, you'll hear them spewing this garbage there as well. It's here in Kansas City. As I understand, it's also getting exported all over the world. This idea that has traded the main message of the Bible what we here would call the biblical gospel for something called the prosperity gospel. Notice the adjective is so different. There's a biblical gospel or a prosperity gospel. And in short, the prosperity gospel would say that if you're a Christian, God wants you right now to be healthy, wealthy, and successful. This Prosperity gospel, then, does not subscribe primarily to the biblical gospel, which we're going to make that real simple in five words. Christ died for our sins. Kids, if you take nothing away from this sermon but that, you're in good shape. Christ died for our sins. I don't hear that much on cable TV from these people spewing the prosperity gospel poison. It is like a poison that might taste sweet going down, but it will undoubtedly bring spiritual death. The prosperity gospel lures some in with this juicy worm of health, wealth, and success only to find those who bite it ensnared with a deadly hook. You'll know you're hearing a prosperity gospel message if somebody says to you, just give $10, sow a seed, and the Lord will give you a 1000 You'll know you're hearing prosperity gospel if somebody was to say, God doesn't want you sick. So if you're facing a chronic illness, you just need to pray and have faith. For anyone who's ever tried the prosperity gospel Kool-Aid, for anyone who's drank this poison, it's actually double discouraging because you look around your life and you go, yeah, man, the, the, my finances aren't where I want them to be, so I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give this money to the church, and, and, and that means God's going to hook me up on the back end. And then on the back end, when it doesn't change anything financially, the prosperity gospel person not only sees that discouragement but then says, well, the reason is because you lack faith. Or if you're struggling with a health issue, 
Or if somebody in your family is struggling with a health issue, prosperity gospel leaves you double discouraged because you're not only facing this very difficult reality, but then when you say to them, well, I've prayed, I, I did all the things I was supposed to do, they'll go, well, you just lack faith. Try harder. Of course, the Bible never teaches us that as Christians on this side of eternity that we are going to be happy, wealthy, or rich. The message of the cross is not that we find health, wealth, and success. The message of the cross is that we follow Christ by picking up our cross and following him. And my hope is you Mill Creekers have some clarity on the difference between the prosperity gospel and the biblical gospel. And, and my hope is that if anybody ever started spewing this garbage, you would know to run the other way. But in my view, I think there are some ways in which some of us, myself included, may unconsciously be drinking some of this poison. Maybe you're like me. You'll turn the TV channel if you hear some of this stuff there, knowing it's not true. Maybe when you're at Walmart, you take the Joel Osteen books and hide them so nobody else can find them, and we feel good about ourselves. But there are times when actually I think we here, as biblically faithful as we're aiming to be, may actually have some prosperity gospel Kool-Aid in our cups. And this morning we come to a text that's going to confront this deadly message. And the way we're going to walk through Genesis 39 then is to consider three questions that will especially help us consider, might we be guilty of actually believing a false gospel? Help us determine if we've drank any of this poison Kool-Aid. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open to Genesis 39 so that you can watch and see for yourself how this text unfolds for us. If you're new to Mill Creek today, I'm really glad you're here. Um, if you've been with us just for the last couple months, you might be thinking, I'm new to Mill Creek because you haven't seen me before. I've been on sabbatical. My name's Jeremy Krause. I'm the lead teaching pastor here, and it's really good to be back. Thanks um, for the opportunity to take that break. And I do want to just say special thank you to Jonathan Drendel and the wonderful job he did, as well as all the rest of the pastors on my sabbatical. My, my sweet wife reminded me, um, I just never was worried about Mill Creek. Time away. You guys are in good hands. Gates of hell won't overcome God's churches. Y'all will be just fine. But I am glad to be back, and God willing, we're together for a long time. Now look, we're in Genesis 39, and, and if you are newer with us, you may be thinking, okay, why Genesis 39? Well, the way we do it around here is we love to just walk through chapters of the Bible, books of the Bible. And so if you are new with us today, you can hit our podcast and listen to Genesis chapters 1 through 38 and all those sermons. And God bless you on that endeavor. It's all good. We've been walking through it. We're going to finish. we got 50 chapters to get done. We'll be done before uh, the end of the year. Today, though, is Genesis 39. So whatever the text says, that's what we want to preach. Look here. The first big question that the text brings for us is this. God's people can expect to be successful, right? 
I want to focus in on verses 1 to 6a. And as we jump in, it would be beneficial to remember that we have been tracking with the life of Joseph since Genesis 37. Remember, Joseph was introduced to us. He's something like 16 or 17 years old, and he is the favored son of Jacob. He is, has a few dreams. He hacks his brothers off. They almost kill him, and then they sell him into slavery as sort of like a compromise. He finds himself in Egypt, sold to this man named Potiphar. Now look in the text, you're going to see Potiphar is a captain of the guard, which I always cruise through that, but I was interested to find out. Captain of the guard means he's tied in tight with Pharaoh, and he's actually in charge of the king's prison. We're going to find that out later in the text. The prison warden, so to speak, has a boss. His boss is Potiphar. But I don't want to get ahead of myself I want you to look in verse 2 where we find something incredible about Joseph. Look with me. The Lord was with Joseph. Evil country, evil boss, sold into slavery, unjust. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Would you actually say that with me? The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he had to do, all that he did to succeed in his hands. Look, notice the Lord's presence is so powerful with Joseph that even Potiphar, who very likely is an idol worshiper, Worshipping Pharaoh or Ra, the sun god, or all of them. Even Potiphar, if we were going to grab him and just do a little quick uh, chat over coffee, we'd go, hey, why is Joseph so good at what he does? Because Joseph has like the Midas touch. Anything Joseph's doing is going well. And, and Potiphar would go, there's only one answer. The, the Lord, whoever Joseph's worked, that God is with him. And I think it's a phenomenal... Uh, concept coming out of Potiphar's wife. He is such a baller. Why Potiphar? Because... Of Joseph's God. That's the only explanation. Now don't, we don't know if Joseph set out to climb the corporate ladder in Potiphar's employment. Don't know that he had an annual goal of, man, I'm going to move to number three, then make it to number two. That's my real goal. But that's what happens. He is in charge of everything except, as Potiphar says, the food that Potiphar eats. That's the only thing he's in charge of. Perhaps Potiphar's primary responsibility is navigating food pipeline from farm to Pharaoh's table. And so that's his one thing that he can't subcontract out to Joseph. And as Potiphar's sitting in his house with a guy as responsible as Joseph, I can't help but think a little, be a little envious. Who here wouldn't love to go, man, who's going to mow the lawn this week? Honey, did you do the budget? Can somebody put the laundry away? Yeah, Joseph's got it. <laughs> At this point of the text, though, we might imagine a prosperity gospel teacher standing up with this text and using this section as proof that if you are one of God's people, God wants you to be successful because look what God does to Joseph in Potiphar's house. Isn't that what we see? Man, if, you, if you're one of God's men, if you're one of God's, if you're one of God's family, he wants you to be. For the cherry on top, look at the beginning of verse 6. 
Joseph is handsome in form and appearance. Prosperity gospel preachers could actually add something to their little repertoire. <laughs> Healthy, wealthy, successful, and easy on the eyes. But here's what I want you to keep in mind. Yes, Joseph has had a great fall from being number two in his dad's home in the promised land. And he lost the robe and they, they, they took that garment and deceived their dad and now he's in slavery in Potiphar's house and he's risen to prominence again. And yes, God is with Joseph, but does that mean that if you are one of God's people, you can expect to be successful in whatever avenue you're in? It all depends and I, and I want you to follow me here because this is crucial for us to understand. It depends on what you mean by success. See, th there are Christians who may be viewed as successful in our culture. And yes, there are examples in the Bible of individuals who are God's people who appear to be successful in the eyes of their culture. But there are also plenty of examples in the Bible of people who do not appear to be successful in the eyes of the culture, at least not in the ways that we would define success. Here's what I'm trying to get at. For those here who consider themselves in the people of God because you have Christ, for those who believe the biblical gospel, we are undoubtedly successful. We are undoubtedly blessed, but our success in blessing is not how our culture defines success and blessing. And you've got to get this. This is crucial to this text, and it is crucial to this sermon, and it's crucial to your lives. Just because you have the gospel, and just because theologically you have Christ, doesn't mean you will be successful in the eyes of our culture. And, and the problem that prosperity gospel preachers have, and some of us may have, is we come to this text and we read in chapter 39, verse 2, Joseph's successful, or in verse 5, he has the Lord's blessing, and we jump to the conclusion, well, that's what God wants for us. He wants us to be successful, and he wants us to be blessed. And I would say, yes, but in the way the Bible defines success and blessing, not in the way our culture does. I missed you, Marvin. <laughs> what this text is teaching and, and what I want us to get is that God's success and our blessing does not necessarily mean we will be materially blessed or financially blessed or relationally blessed or vocationally blessed. Because that's not how the Christian life promises to work. See, if you're here and you just want to check this Jesus thing out, you're just curious, like, how does it all work? We do not try to take Jesus and believe in Jesus and then use Jesus and leverage him to get what we really want. Jesus is not the means to an end. He's the end. And, and if you have Christ, you have everything. Amen. Let me say it a different way. If you believe the gospel, Christ's death for our sins, 
God has promised to send you the Holy Spirit. You have the powerful Spirit of Christ inside of you. And when you have Christ's Spirit inside of you, you don't need on this side of eternity to be healthy, wealthy, or successful to have a good life. So if you're sitting there thinking, I'm going to go to Mill Creek today. I'm going to do my little duty so that I get hooked up by God because what I really want is fill in the blank with any of this prosperity gospel garbage. You've missed the point. Whether we are successful in the eyes of our culture or not, it doesn't matter. So here is the answer to the question. Can God's people expect to be successful? Well, it all depends on how you're defining success. If you want to define it biblically, yes. If you're importing success in what you think it means onto the text, no. Here's a litmus test. Pastor, how do I know if I'm drinking the prosperity gospel Kool-Aid? If you think God owes you worldly success because of your obedience... If you see God as some cosmic landlord up there who goes, you better pay the rent, punk, and I'll let you stay in my good graces as long as you pay the rent. All right, man, they're going to send the offering basket around. Honey, pay the rent. What are we going to do this morning? Should we go to church? Yeah, we got to pay the rent. What am I going to do? Am I going to do the right thing? Yeah, we better do the right thing, pay the rent. So God will bless us the way we want. Beware. That's prosperity gospel Kool-Aid. That didn't... Bible. Kids, kids, I don't know what you really want right now. Like if we sat down and I said, hey, tell me what you really want. My kids want a phone. I don't know what you want. PS5. Who cares? If you, I want you to get this. Kids, if you think to yourself, man, if I just obey God and do what he wants, maybe he'll give me a phone. Uh-uh. God owes you nothing. He owes me nothing. You and I can obey the rest of our lives. He owes us nothing. We can still end up poor, sick, and hated in the eyes of our culture. You and I can follow every biblical principle in the book of Proverbs for trying to be good people, for trying to honor God in our marriages, for trying to honor God with our kids, trying to be financially wise. We can follow every piece of advice in the text and we can still end up poor, sick, and hated. But if we have Christ, we have everything. For those capturing and internalizing this point, here's an application in view of this. Let us do our best for Christ. In view that we have Christ and whatever responsibilities are before us today and this week, let's do our best. Whether you're a student going to school, do your best. Maybe you are working in an evil country for an evil boss like Joseph, do your best. Maybe you're trying to climb the corporate ladder, do your best for Christ. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that it is from the Lord whom you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus. Have this attitude, I'm going to do my best for Jesus. And look, you do that. 
you may get promoted. You do that, you may get fired. I don't know which is going to happen. Either could happen. Some people love it when you act and love and serve Jesus at your work. Some people hate it and they're going to want to bury you. But no matter what you do, just work heartily as for the Lord. That's the ultimate success. Question two from our text to consider if we're drinking prosperity Kool-Aid. God's people don't have to face temptation, right? I'm going to draw this from middle of six to the end of 18. This is the longest section of our text, but we find our answer quite easily. If you're new to Christianity, you're wondering how all of this stuff works with temptation. Let's just say it on the top here. Let's be clear. God's people will face temptation. I was really hoping you are going to say no. <laughs> the answer is yes. God's people struggle with temptation all the time. Joseph faces it in our text. The Israelites whom this is written to faced it in their life. Moses faced temptation. Jesus himself in Matthew 4 faced temptation at his weakest when he hadn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. God's people are not magically protected from temptation to sin. And it's bad stuff that we get tempted with. Look what Joseph is dealing with, verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Potiphar's wife is going after the handsome Joseph. And look at verse 10. She's constant and consistent in her sexual advances, trying to wear him down, speaking this trash day after day. Joseph has integrity. Stephen, in Acts 7, looks back on Joseph and says, Joseph was actually wise. Why is he so wise? Look at verse 8. Look at verse 9. Joseph says to Potiphar's wife, look, man, Potiphar trusts me with everything, and, and he's given me access to everything but you. So, so there's nobody greater in this house than I am, verse 9. He's, kept, he's not kept anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness against, and we would guess that he was going to say, against my master. How, how can I do this awful thing against Potiphar? But in fact, look at the text, what Joseph says. I mean, he's thinking about Potiphar a little bit, but then he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Yeah, Potiphar's kind of a, I'm wanting to respect him, but, but nothing is worth this compared to God. Joseph has integrity and he's wise because he's keeping God in the equation with temptation. Joseph's greatest concern is what will God think? Oh, that we would view our sexual sin as a great wickedness against God. Oh, that we would desire to live righteously before God like Joseph did. You might remember that in the last chapter, Genesis 38, there's this guy named Judah who ends up going into a cult prostitute, and it's nasty. Judah, son of Jacob, is the antitype for us. And here's Joseph in the very next chapter showing how are God's people supposed to respond to sexual temptation. Purity. 
We're not through the chapter yet, but let me pitch you an application here. Don't be surprised by temptation. Friend, don't be surprised by temptation. If your lungs are beating and breathing and your heart is beating, you will be tempted. It may be a temptation to compromise sexual purity like Joseph. It may be temptation to distrust God in an awful situation. You may be tempted to want to think of God as a vending machine. You pumped your quarters in. Where's the Coke? Don't be surprised by temptation. If you trust in Christ, you will be tempted. Satan hates you. Satan has come to lie, steal, kill, and destroy. 1 Peter 5.8, Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He will bait the hook with whatever particular temptation is worst for you, and he wants you to bite it so he can reel you in and he can kill you. Don't be surprised by temptation. And, and by the way, don't be surprised that people you love are being tempted. This isn't just for you. Uh, and people around you are being tempted in ways that you may go, well, that doesn't tempt me and I don't understand what's wrong with you. How could you be tempted by that? Oh, my God. Oh. That's exactly what they think about your sin. All of it's nasty. All of us are being tempted. And, and what we need in, in those moments of temptation is, is, is the grace from God to believe he is better and he is worthy. And so when somebody you love is struggling with temptation, man, point them to Jesus. Because when you have Jesus, you have everything. Back to the text in verse 11, Potiphar's wife has found Joseph in the wrong place at the wrong time. Our text is clear. Joseph didn't do anything wrong. He's just doing his responsibilities, but she grabs his garment. Let's go, Joseph. He says no. He runs out of the house. Here then our narrative turns terribly dark. This then accuses Joseph of rape. Verses 14 and 16, she first rallies all the other households. Look what he did. I've got the garment. 17 and 18, she tells her husband. Interesting that this is the second time one of Joseph's pieces of clothing is used to deceive. It happened with his robe and his dad. It happens with his little garment here. Brings us to the end of this second point. I hope you see, yes, God's people face temptation. Here's final application for this point. Make up your mind right now what you're going to do when you face temptation. Joseph, Joseph had it settled. He isn't going to sit down and have a heart-to-heart -heart with Potiphar's wife. Hey, baby, why don't you hold hands with me? We'll just pray about what God wants us to do right now. He knew what he's going to do. He ran away. So decide right now how you're going to respond. Those of you, if you're dating, you're in a relationship. If the relationship is turning physical, decide right now what you're going to do. If it's one in the morning and you're making out and you're thinking, I'm not quite sure where our line's going to be too late. For those of you struggling with alcohol, 
If you're pouring a second one tonight, you're like, I wonder where my line is. Too late. I don't know what temptation you're prone to. I know you're tempted. I'm tempted too. For all of us, let's be honest and decide right now how we're going to respond. And maybe you're just going, man, I don't even know where to start with that. Maybe you could just decide right now. When I'm feeling tempted, I'm going to text a friend I trust. And if you don't have a friend you trust, make one today. Hey, would you pray for me? I'm, I'm struggling with temptation. How do we know if we're guilty of drinking the prosperity Kool-Aid here? A second litmus test. You're drinking the Kool-Aid if you ever think to yourself, I'm not going to be tempted by anything. I'm, I'm over that. God bless the folks I've met with who've said that to me. Man, I really used to struggle with a lot of sin. I'm, I'm free now. Well, I hope you're free now. Just don't be surprised that you're going to be tempted in... That way again someday or a new way? You're drinking the Kool-Aid if you don't think you're ever going to suffer as well, which brings us to our final question, final part of the text. God's people won't hit rock bottom, right? I think that's a presumption of the prosperity gospel preachers. Oh, you won't hit rock bottom. So we won't hit rock bottom, right? Once Potiphar hears his wife's story here in the text, his anger is kindled. But notice something. The text doesn't tell us exactly who Potiphar's angry at. It's it's vague. Some commentaries noted the language here is, is trying to give us this impression. He's angry, but we don't know where his anger is aimed. I always just imported onto this that, well, of course he's mad at Joseph, duh. But that's not the way the language works. Hold that thought for a moment and look what happens to Joseph in verse 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Here's what I learned. If you are an immigrant slave in Egypt, accused of raping the master's wife, you're killed. Like, if we would have been there prior to Potiphar walking home from his day, and we were one of the household servants who was, like, Potiphar's wife's like, Joseph tried to take advantage of me, and I have his garment. We would go, what do you think is going to happen to Joseph? The answer is, he did. In fact, Potiphar, the expectation is, he doesn't even go to trial. Potiphar comes home, he takes him out back, Joseph's dead. You don't do this. And he's an immigrant slave. Who even cares anyway? Nobody cares. Kill the guy. You don't do that to my wife. So why is the text vague with where Potiphar's anger is aimed? And why does Joseph, as an immigrant slave, get thrown into the king's prison? By the way, the king's prison. This isn't General Pops. He's not just going to the normal prison. He's going to the, the special prison. Why is that? What I read from several different, several different angles, and I think I've become convinced of this, is Potiphar's angry, but I think he knows something about his wife. And I think Potiphar realizes, I just lost my best guy. King Midas is gone, man. Because of my wife? I think it's possible. Draw your own conclusion. I know this is outside 
of exactly what the scripture is saying explicitly. But I think Potiphar realizes, oh man, oh man, wife, how did you do this to me? I'm gonna, but I can't, I'm not gonna kill the man because I think he's innocent. I'm just gonna throw him in my prison. And the king's prison was in his backyard. He's in charge of the prison, so he decides, I'm, I have to save face. I can't make my wife look awful, but I don't want to kill an innocent man. And then verse 21, most important part of this chapter. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Will you say that with me? But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Despite the awful circumstances and hitting rock bottom, God's still with Joseph. If you're tracking close, you could put one finger on verse 2 of this chapter, and one finger on verse 21, and notice they are parallel. Joseph still has the Midas touch. He's just got a new job. Verse 22 and 23, he's climbing the food chain again. He's climbing the corporate ladder in the king's prison. Whatever Joseph does, the Lord makes it succeed. And here then is the answer to our final question. Might God's people hit rock bottom? Yes. God is all-powerful. God has all control over all circumstances. And yet, will he allow those of us who are his people to hit rock bottom in the text? Clearly, yes. So it follows, dear friends. Modern-day Christians like you and I, we may very well choose to be faithful. In the face of temptation, great temptation, we may be obedient. And yet, our situation may move from bad to worse. Somebody may sit us down and go, something going on in your life? And you go, yeah, I've been facing this awful temptation. Oh, what'd you do? I obeyed the Lord. But why are things getting worse for you then? Ah, (laughs) Sounds like Job. The prosperity gospel poison will blame you for little faith, telling you you shouldn't have to face difficult situations, but I'm telling you, Scripture is consistent and it teaches us that despite righteous living, we will still suffer, whether that is in a form of persecution or a result of the fall. Christians will face awful circumstances and situations We are not promised health, wealth, or success on this side of death. Oh, yes, we look forward to the day, the future day, when Jesus comes back. After he comes back, health, wealth, and success is coming. And that's where prosperity gospel teachers just get it confused. Oh, it's all happening, but that's after Jesus comes back, not before. For us today, men, understand suffering is part of our journey. For us, though, who have Christ, we have everything. That's a sermon in a sentence. If you have Christ, you have everything. Do you believe that? You can strip everything else away. Everything else might fall away, but if we have Christ, we have everything. Friend, reject any part of the prosperity gospel poison you've been sipping. If, 
if you think you can avoid suffering and hardship because of your obedience, if you think you'll never hit rock bottom because you're so faithful, that's evidence you're believing the prosperity gospel. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Not only is Paul clear that suffering is to be expected, consider our great God and King, Jesus himself. And this is what really gets me with prosperity gospel teachers. Have you read the gospels? <laughs> Do you know what happens at the end of Jesus' life? He's there in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think that's his rock bottom. He's sweating blood. He's so oppressed. He's praying, please, God, no. Please, anything but this. And yet, he stands up and he takes it. He did not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus didn't lose face. He didn't lose faith. Jesus set his face to Calvary, great suffering, and for the joy before him, he endured the cross. He scorned the shame, and now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or lose heart, Hebrews 12. Christian, we hit rock bottom. We suffer. Joseph suffered. Moses suffered. The Israelites suffered. Christ suffered. We're going to suffer. If you're here and you're like, well, I ain't suffering yet. I got bad news for you. It's coming. And what will hold us through it? Christ will hold us. Christ will hold you through it. And here's... Here, then, is what Joseph's life shows us. We all want the exaltation. <laughs> I can't wait for Jesus' second coming. We all want the exaltation. We don't want the humiliation. We all want the glory. We don't want the suffering. But what Joseph's story shows us is suffering comes before glory. And that's what happened with Christ. Suffering, then glory. Joseph points us to Jesus. He is the true and better Joseph who was humiliated on the cross before his ultimate exaltation. For all of us who have him, we have Christ, we have everything we need. Final application for us today. Spit out any of the prosperity gospel poison you've been drinking. Ways that it is inconspicuously become part of the way you're thinking or living, or acting. Spit it out. Let Genesis 39 clarify the biblical gospel as a contrast, and believe Jesus. Believe the true gospel. I mean, Christ died for our sins. And Jesus really is Emmanuel, God with us. And if you have Christ, you have everything. Will you pray with me? Oh, God, would you give us what we need for ways that we have wrongly believed the prosperity gospel. We are sorry. Convict us of sin.
Give us assurance. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.